let's pray. Let's ask God for help. Gracious Father God, we give you thanks for your word. Father, through your spirit, please, Father, bring your word home to our hearts and minds. Uh, Please, may it bear fruit for you, Father. Please help me to speak your word faithfully, clearly, with love. And help us all, Father, to be doers of your word and not just hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Now, for those listening to this sermon 20 years from now, okay, the future listeners, there's been a buzz in Melbourne all week, a big cultural event. Taylor Swift, the the biggest recording artist in the world, is in town performing three sold-out concerts at the MCG, and Swifties have been out in force with their sequins and friendship bracelets. And you've got to hand it to Taylor. There's a sense of optimism and joy and celebration as everyone waits for their Queen Tay-Tay. Now, I I want you to imagine you were one of the lucky ones to score a ticket. A few of you don't have to imagine. You were there. Now imagine, though, after all the anticipation, Taylor emerges on that stage of a packed MCG, all her fans squealing in delight, we love you, Taylor, cheering wildly as their queen emerges. And then instead of saying, I love you, Melbourne, Taylor picks up one of her expensive guitars, smashes it on stage, and then proceeds to denounce the city of Melbourne, casting judgment on its people. There's shock, there's silence. Some people actually might believe that there's some truth to what Taylor is saying. Others think she's nuts. And meanwhile, the Victorian government start planning her assassination. Uh, That's not the the plot of my next novel. but, (laughs) But what happens around Jesus today in the passage we're looking at has something of this buzz, this expectation, but also this intense drama. We're going to be looking at three things tonight, the king's welcome, the king's curse, and the king's confidence. Well, firstly, the king's welcome. I want to set the scene for today's passage last week. Having encountered Bartimaeus in Jericho and having transformed him from a blind beggar to a Jesus follower, Jesus once again resumes his mission. He's marching towards Jerusalem. And it wasn't just Jesus who was walking towards Jerusalem. Thousands of pilgrims from all over Israel were walking towards the holy city as this was the time of Passover. One of the festivals in the Jewish calendar where you might do this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. There's a sense of expectation, buzz, as people look forward to seeing their relatives and friends with whom they would go to the temple to remember God's rescue, his salvation in the exodus. And it wasn't just about remembering, but this pilgrimage was one of hope, expectation that God would do things in the future. Remember, Israel did not have their own freedom. They've been under Roman rule and they longed for God to free his people. And although it's a a tiring 25-kilometer uphill walk all the way to Jericho, you're just waiting for that last climb when you see the gleaming temple emerge. That's the context. There's buzz, there's anticipation in the air. And then Jesus sends two of his disciples to get him a colt, a young male horse, which 
Matthew's gospel refers to as a donkey. Now, we're not told whether this has been prearranged by Jesus or whether all of this happens just because of his miraculous power. But everything happens just as Jesus says. Now, it wasn't typical for Passover pilgrims to enter on a donkey because the final stage into Jerusalem was done on foot. So Jesus is actually making a statement by doing this, a messianic statement. Now listen to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this is the most public statement that Jesus makes about his identity right throughout Mark's gospel. You know, he's often telling people not to speak about his identity. Back in chapter 8, when the disciples first understood that Jesus was the longed-for Messiah, God's long-awaited deliverer of his people, Jesus told them not to disclose this. But the time has come. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, now is the time for the king to be announced. Uh, Listen to the response, verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. They are literally laying out a red carpet for Jesus, so that the hooves of his donkey don't touch the dusty ground. This is how you treat royalty. Verse 9, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus knows he's the king, and it seems so does this crowd. Hosanna is a term of praise, meaning God save us. And now they're also shouting Psalm 118 at their Davidic king. God's king is riding into God's city. Long live the king. The king has come. And this is, as we've termed it traditionally, Palm Sunday. And yet by Friday, five days later, another crowd in Jerusalem will be crying out, crucify him before they nail him to the cross. Now remember, at the time, Jerusalem is under Roman rule. So the only king that would be allowed to enter a city in triumph was the Roman emperor. So I asked ChatGPT, how did Roman emperors enter a city? Here's what I got. Emperors often entered cities through triumphal processions. These processions were elaborate events that showcased the emperor's wealth, power, and military prowess. Emperors might ride a chariot, often drawn by horses, symbolizing their military triumphs and leadership. Alternatively, they could ride on horseback, which also conveyed strength and authority. Citizens of the city would often line the streets to welcome the emperor, cheering and expressing their loyalty. Now, how does that compare with the triumphant entry of Jesus? Human rulers love displays of strength and power, stallions, chariots, tanks, armies, missile launches. And Jesus, the Messiah, is humble and riding on a donkey. There's something different about this king, isn't there? 
more powerful than any ruler who's ever lived, but he doesn't need to flex. The mission and the might of this king is not displayed with a sword, but with a cross. For this king, remember last week, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But this king still deserves our praise and honour. I want you to think for a moment, if you had been there as Jesus was was riding past, would you have welcomed him as your king? Would you have thrown down your cloak on that dusty, dirty Middle Eastern road? You see, you don't throw down your precious cloak for your friend or your family member. You throw it down for your king. Would you have done that for King Jesus? Uh, According to Brisbane Times, school teacher Catherine Coombs forked out thousands to be part of the Taylor Swift experience. She told the Brisbane Times that contributing, I I will live in my land of delusion and continue to say it was only $3,000. Contributing to that cost is an $899 VIP ticket, $500 return, Gold Coast to Sydney, airfares, $500 for two nights of shared accommodation with three others, $300 transfers and ride shares, $110 for makeup, at least $300 for friendship bracelet supplies, and about $400 on crafts for her DIY outfit. I admire Catherine because she's willing to throw that much down to welcome her queen. What am I willing to throw down for my King Jesus? What are you willing to throw down for him? Surely more than 3,000. More than my cloak, the king who lays down his life for me He deserves everything, doesn't he? Well, the king has come. Here's the second point, the king's curse. Verse 11, he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, in the rest of the chapter, Jesus is coming and growing from Jerusalem, but I think it'll help us to see that the temple is now the focal point of the rest of this chapter. God's king has come to God's city and is now focused on God's house. Now, Jesus is going to return to the temple the next day, but for now he resides in Bethany, which is only a few kilometers away from Jerusalem. Verse 12. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. And here we have one of the strangest recorded episodes of Jesus in the Gospels. It seems really out of character, quite random for Jesus not only to talk to a fig tree, but to curse it. I mean, fair enough, he's hungry, but the fig tree's out of season. I mean, why would he curse it? Is Jesus hangry? I mean, we've all been there. Did Jesus kind of just lose self-control in a moment of impulsive frustration, take out his anger on an innocent tree? And then it kind of gets worse. Look, jump down to verse 20. The next day, verse 20, early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
So not only did he curse the tree, but using his supernatural power, he killed the tree. What's going on before we lose the vegan audience? Okay, let me explain. What we have in this passage is what is called a Markin sandwich. Now, this is why you go to Bible college, okay? Where Mark puts one account in the middle of two parts of another account. So it goes bread, filling bread, bread, fig tree part one, filling the temple, and then bread, fig tree part two. And the filling helps to explain the bread. Now, Mark and sandwiches happened several times in the book of Mark. So remember all the way back in chapter five, you've got the healing of the bleeding woman in between two episodes with Jairus and Jairus' daughter. Mmm, Mark and sandwich. Now, it's also important to remember the background of the Old Testament, fig trees. Now, in a number of prophets like Jeremiah or Micah, Israel is likened to a fig tree. And those who are righteous are like figs on that fig tree. Listen to the prophet Micah speaking of his people, Israel. What misery is mine, I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. So I think what's happening here is for Jesus, the fig tree is an enacted parable. It's an illustration to the disciples of what Israel is like. He's teaching them something. Israel looks good. It looks leafy on the outside. It should be producing the fruit of righteousness for God, and yet its branches are barren, no fruit. Now that's the bread. Let's look at the filling. Let's look at what Jesus finds at the temple. And remember, the temple is like the heartbeat of Israel. You know, if the MCG is the spiritual home for the sport and event-loving people of Melbourne, the temple is like the spiritual home of Israel. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, if the fig tree is one of the strangest episodes, this is one of the most confronting episodes in the Gospels. We are not used to seeing a violent Jesus. In fact, John's account tells us that Jesus made a whip and he basically whipped people out of the temple court. Now, you can imagine the chaos. Tables crashing to the ground, animals bleating everywhere, coins flying through the air, scattering on the ground as people recoil at the shock at the sight of Jesus and his zealous anger. I mean, that is hardly the picture of Jesus that most people have in their heads. Western, Jesus, meek and mild, wouldn't hurt a fly. That's what we think, isn't it? What's causing Jesus to do this? Again, some background. It was customary for people to exchange money from Roman currency to Jewish currency to pay the temple tax. Okay, that's okay. It was customary for people to buy doves, particularly the poor, to buy doves to sacrifice at the temple. 
So the changing of money, the selling of doves, is not the problem in and of itself. It's where it's taking place. Now, this trade usually took place at the Mount of Olives, which was outside the temple. But instead, Caiaphas, the high priest, has allowed this to happen inside the temple, where? In the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles was the area, the only area of the temple that non-Jewish people could go and pray. And so what should have been a place for people to do business with God in prayer became a place where people just did business for money. Now, if you've ever been to a market outside of Australia, markets are places where there's haggling, There's noise, there's animals everywhere. You could hardly describe it as a house of prayer. And there's evidence to suggest that the priests actually got a cut of the profit for themselves. Can you see why Jesus is angry? He quotes Isaiah 56, the temple was to be God's house for people of all nations to come and pray to him. And God's people, Israel, were to be a light to the Gentiles. And yet the Gentiles couldn't even pray because of what was taking place. Uh, In our morning services here, uh, people attend in wheelchairs and prams. And we've used the aisles to give them access Now imagine if the pastors here decided that instead of keeping the aisles free, we we set up advertising boards for local businesses. And we put tables where they could put their information up for the highest bidder. And we got a cut of that. And we we decided to block up the entrances with Bundy merchandise, T-shirts, signed copies of my album. And wheelchairs and prams could not enter the auditorium. Imagine that. Would that make you angry? I hope so. And I can tell you, Jesus would be kicking all that down. Jesus is angry because he's zealous for God and his people. He wants God's children to come to their father in humble prayer and anything that prevents this burns him up. And so the king is cleaning house. The priests he likens to a den of thieves overconfident in the abuse of their authority, overconfident in the presence that the temple was theirs, overconfident in thinking that God would never judge people like them and how wrong they were. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, which happened just 40 years later at the hands of the Romans. Now, I hope you're starting to see how this episode relates to the fig tree. The temple that Herod built was an impressive building. But like the fig tree, under the leaders of Israel, it was all show and no go. And when there's no righteous fruit, you sit under the king's curse. Now, you might still be finding that this picture of Jesus overturning tables at the temple a little bit disconcerting. But I just want to go a bit deeper, okay? You need a fuller picture of Jesus. He gets angry, but it's different to our anger. You know, often our anger is power that is out of control, and often strength is used to harm the weak, for example, in family violence, which is wrong. But Jesus' anger is power under control, 
Jesus' anger is power that is used to defend and protect the weak. Here are a few occasions when Jesus gets angry. Hypocrisy makes Jesus angry. Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Do you see that? The strong taking advantage of the weak, Jesus gets angry. Causing a child of God to fall away makes Jesus angry. Matthew 18, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That is strong language, isn't it? Strong taking advantage of the weak, Jesus gets angry. Preventing children from coming to Jesus makes Jesus angry. Mark 10, we looked at this a few weeks ago. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant, angry, and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, in all these situations, people who are in positions of power, who should know better, are hurting those who are weaker and more vulnerable, the strong preventing the weak from experiencing God's kingdom, and it makes Jesus angry. And to be honest, it should make us angry too. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan is a great lion. Aslan is the ruler of Narnia who is portrayed as the Christ-like figure in that story. And Susan is surprised since she assumed Aslan was a man. She then tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Jesus is good. He's the king. But he's not safe to the overconfident. Is that you? Are you overconfident? Fine on Sunday, you look good, but the rest of the week you're a hypocrite, an abuser, a bully, a cheat. Take this as a warning. If you don't humble yourself before Jesus, you will meet him as the king who curses. Listen to these verses in Revelation 19, speaking of Jesus in the judgment to come. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe, on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But to those who have been abused, who've been bullied, who've been prevented for whatever reason from knowing the love and grace of Jesus, if you turn to Jesus, you will find that he alone is your champion. He is the king who is safe. The actions of Jesus were not safe for him though. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. 
for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. And just as Jesus prophesied to his disciples, Jesus will be crucified at the hands of these men. And here's our third and final point, the king's confidence. Well, after the fig tree and after the temple incident, Jesus is now teaching his disciples where they should put their confidence. Verse 22, Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Have faith in God, Jesus says. Don't put your confidence in people, in priests, in buildings, in institutions, in religious practices. Put your confidence in God. And faith in God is expressed in prayer. Now, how are we to make sense of what Jesus is saying here? Is this a a blank check kind of prayer? You know, whatever you want, as long as you ask God sincerely enough, as long as you truly believe in your heart of hearts, he will give it to you, even if it is impossible. And if God doesn't answer the prayer the way you want, it must be because you didn't have enough faith. Now, these verses, sadly, have been used in wrong ways. People have prayed for incurable sicknesses, which is okay, I think, but often left dumbfounded when their loved ones have died, even after much sincere prayer. And these verses have also been used as a weapon in accusation to tell people that their lack of faith resulted in those prayers not getting answered. It's dangerous, isn't it? How are we to think of these verses? Now think about the context. When Jesus says this mountain, now he's walking from Bethany towards Jerusalem. And I think the mountain he's looking at is Mount Zion. That's where the temple resides. And I think Jesus is using outrageous imagery to make a point, just like he did when he talked about the camel going through the eye of the needle. But this image has a bit of bite to it. Now if you say to Mount Zion, go jump into the ocean, the temple goes with it, right? And the destruction of the temple, God's house in God's city, that would seem impossible to the people listening to Jesus. In fact, Jesus makes it explicit in John chapter 2 when he turned the tables over. He said this, John 2 verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, God is going to do the impossible. The temple, as they knew it, was going to be destroyed. And in fact, the moment that Jesus died on the cross, the the temple curtain that separated God from man was torn from top to bottom. In other words, it was torn by God himself. And the resurrected Jesus himself, he would now be the living temple by which people could approach God. You see, the thing about the people who are listening to Jesus the first time he says this is that the thing they're shocked by is that Jesus 
would say that they could have that kind of faith in God. I mean, how possibly can we have the kind of access to God that you're talking about? How can we boldly ask him for things? It's because of what Jesus achieved on the cross. Look at Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Verse 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Jesus is the living temple. Jesus is the great high priest, so much better than that corrupt Caiaphas. He gives you access to God through prayer, prayer that the Israelites could only dream of, that you can approach God with boldness, for Jesus has done the impossible. Mount Zion has been thrown into the sea, and you can have faith in God and approach him with confidence. Pray, because through the cross of Christ, you can pray. And he won't hear you more because of your sincerity. He's not going to hear you because of your earnest effort. He will hear you because of Jesus. It's not how much faith you have. It's the object of your faith, Jesus. Now, verse 24 seems to say that everything we pray for, we can get. But we need to be careful here. Jesus is not a genie, right? You don't get three wishes. John 14 says this. Jesus said to his disciples, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Twice he says that. Now, in Jesus' name is not abracadabra. It's praying for things that are in line with the will of Jesus, things that give glory and honor to God. Now remember, Jesus himself did not always get the prayer, the answer to the prayer that he asked for. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to God. He was completely distressed. He asked God to take the cup of suffering from him. That is the prospect of the horror of the cross the next day. But God didn't answer that prayer the way Jesus wanted. Because the only way to give us confident access to God was through the horror of the cross for Jesus. And yet Jesus finished that prayer, how? Yet not my will, but your will be done. So we have to be careful here about what Jesus says about faith expressed in prayer, that it does not contradict what Jesus does pray himself and also what he says about prayer in other parts of the Bible. But having said all this, we should never justify lack of prayer. We should never justify faithlessness in prayer. Because when we don't pray, I think it says something about ourselves and how we view God. Because God can do the impossible. God can raise the dead. God can cure the incurable. And he can change a person's heart from stone to flesh. These are impossible things. And when we don't pray, it's like we're saying, I can do it. I can rely on my efforts. Or I don't need God. Or he's not capable of those things. So we, we don't need to ask him. Pray. Come on Wednesday night to the prayer meeting. Pray in private. Pray in growth groups. Pray. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what faith in God looks like. There is one condition, verse 25. Verse 25. 
And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Now, Jesus taught this same condition to his disciples in the Lord's Prayer. If you're not willing to forgive others, then God will not hear your prayers when you seek forgiveness. Now, remember, okay, Jesus dying on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's your king, right? And it's good enough for your king, it's good enough for you to follow that example. We must never forget the cost of forgiveness for ourselves. We must never forget the access that God gives us to his throne of grace and how expensive that is. So we also need to be willing to forgive. So let me ask you, are you praying? Now to the stubborn, the unrepentant, to those who are unwilling to forgive, God will not hear your prayers unless you humble yourself, unless you repent and go and make things right with others. Then you should pray. To the scared, to those who are weighed down with guilt and shame and afraid to come to God, Jesus, your King, has given you great confidence to pray with faith. For he is the one who carries your guilt and shame to the cross, so you can approach God confidently. Come to him, ask him for things like a child who depends on their loving father. To the self-reliant, people like me, you think you're powerful, you think you've got choices, but you are not powerful enough to save yourself, to save others. You need God more than you realize. And you need to pray before you act. So humble yourself in dependent prayer. The king has come. I was devastated to hear the news this morning that a teenage girl, Mika Bukaria, was killed in a collision with a truck on Thursday. And she was traveling with her mum and her 10-year-old sister to see the Taylor Swift concert. Mika's sister is currently in critical condition in an induced coma and their mum has some minor injuries. And it is impossible to imagine what this family is going through right now. The anticipation of a trip of a lifetime, a mum and her two daughters, has been shattered. Joy has turned to unimaginable grief. And I'm not sure I would know what to say to this family right now, except to grieve with them. They have lost so much. But what I do pray is that one day they might know King Jesus. The King who knows suffering better than any of us ever could. The king who wept with angry tears at the grave of his friend Lazarus. The king who has come to put an end to sin and death forever. The king has come. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we do bring before you the Pacaria family. We just do pray for them, comfort them in their grief. We pray for Mika's little sister, that you would help her to recover from her injuries. And please, Father, may this family 
come to know Jesus if they don't already. Father, please help us tonight as we've heard of the King coming in triumph that we might welcome Jesus and throw down our cloaks for him. Father, we're confronted by an angry Jesus, but we're also comforted by an angry Jesus, the strong who protects the weak. Father, please help us to be people who are not overconfident, but confident in Jesus, that through the cross we might come to you with boldness and pray to you with boldness knowing that you will hear and answer according to your will. We pray all these things for the glory of our King Jesus. Amen.